Summer is uh, slowly ending. I was talking with one of my neighbors the other day. I'm not sure. Is summer officially over? Has fall started? Does anybody know? Tomorrow. Oh, so he's technically right for one more day. So I don't know what you begin to think of when the weather starts getting cooler, um, but I start thinking about Thanksgiving, um, particularly the meal. Um, uh, the, the, the best Thanksgiving that I can ever remember was, uh, was with some, was when we were in St. Louis, we drove from St. Louis to Huntington, West Virginia to spend uh, Thanksgiving with our best friends. And all we did the whole time was laugh and eat good food. Uh, the best Thanksgiving turkey I ever had was a deep fried West Virginia turkey. It was delicious. Uh, we liked the, the, the crust on the outside when it sizzles in the oil. Uh, we, uh, we named it crispy goodness and it was so good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I could have a Thanksgiving that was nothing but crispy goodness and be very, very thankful. Um, those, those things are very compatible Good friends, good food. Um, but if you're thinking about deep frying a turkey because you want to experience and achieve crispy goodness, there's some warnings you need to be aware of. And the fire department does a good job of letting you know about this every year because there, there are two things that aren't compatible. Hot, boiling, bubbling oil and a frozen turkey. Absolutely, completely and totally incompatible. When you drop a frozen turkey into this hot oil, you will not get crispy goodness. An explosion and a disaster will happen that will wound and harm you and probably burn down your deck or your house or your home or whatever is around. Uh, those things are so incompatible that... Uh, and an explosion happens when they come together. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and this morning we are going to see two other things that are completely incompatible. And when these two things come together, there is an explosion that occurs. Uh, the two things that we're going to see that are incompatible here in the, the chapter of Acts that we're looking at this morning is the message of Jesus and the religion of man. When these two things come together, they are incompatible and an explosion is going to happen. So if you would, look with me. We're in. Uh, we're actually going to start in... Acts chapter 6, and we're going to work our way through all of chapter 7. It's long, but it is one sermon uh, that Stephen, we encountered him a couple of weeks ago, and I'll fill us in again on who he is, but that he is giving. So um, this is God's Word. Uh, I am going to read the whole thing out. As one of my professors used to say, me reading this may actually be the best sermon you hear all day. <laughs> so listen to God's word as we uh, we hear from uh, what he has to say for us this morning. Um, so uh, from Acts chapter six, beginning in verse eight. And Stephen 
full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who believed, or I'm sorry, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed uh, with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. But we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who uh, sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge that nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? 
But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. There came a voice from the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man. God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, sermons like this that Stephen gives. Uh, We pray that, Holy Spirit, um, as you inspired and worked through Luke to write this down for us today to hear, uh, would you apply it to our hearts? Give us eyes to see um, what you would have us learn and take away from this, um, that we would cling and hope and trust in Jesus. Um, In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. so what we're going to see in this uh, in this passage is that the message of Jesus is not compatible with man-made religion. Um, notice how this passage starts up. Uh, Stephen here, uh, it tells us in uh, verse 8 and 9, um, it, he, he finds himself in a dispute with the Hellenists. So remember from a couple of weeks ago, who, when Luke is using this term Hellenist, it's talking about those whose, uh, whose normal, everyday, native tongue, their mother tongue language is Greek. Uh, and remember, that is that who's, who Stephen is. Stephen was a, a Jew whose native language is, uh, is Greek. He's come to embrace and hope and trust in Christ. Now here he is uh, disputing with Jewish Hellenists, so Jews who have not trusted in Jesus yet, but um, whose language is uh, whose uh, normal native language is Greek. They're not uh, Hebrew or Aramaic speakers. And notice that the dispute that they're in with Stephen has to do with the implications that this message of Jesus has for their way of religious life. Notice how they bring this up um, in verse 11 and following. The things that that they object to and react to with the implications of what Stephen is saying. In verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came and they seized them. They brought them before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Um, whether they understood Stephen correctly or not, they're bringing up these, uh, these false witnesses. A same thing happened to Jesus. And actually, it's a similar uh, charges that were brought against him. But uh, we can't miss this, that w- their understanding that there's something about the message of Jesus that should change and affects the way that we relate to the temple and the way that we relate to God's law. And they are not pleased with what Stephen is saying the implications of this is. Now, it's important for us to realize, is this just Stephen's opinion? 
is just just one arrogant, loudmouthed dude who likes to put himself in the midst of controversy and is here is engaging this whole synagogue of the freedmen. So this is a, a remember we talked about before because of the differences in languages there were hebrew or aramaic speaking synagogues in jerusalem at that time and there were greek speaking uh uh synagogues at that time and so stephen is taking the gospel to other greek speakers he is here disputing with them is it just his opinion Remember, Luke is is intent on giving the readers of this letter so that we can have surety and certainty about who Jesus is and the implications of his message. And notice what he says here about Stephen. In verse 8, it says that Stephen was full of grace and power, that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, remember that these these signs and wonders aren't just uh, magic kind of sideshow things, but it's God confirming the authenticity of the message that the speaker is bringing. And so for what we should see here from the beginning is that this isn't just Stephen's opinion. He's not just a jerk who's just poking at the Jews and trying to rile them up. He is full of grace and power that comes from the Lord and the signs and wonders that he's doing show that the message that he is communicating is actually one that is coming from God, not just Stephen's opinion. In fact, that's even more clear when we look down in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Remember, Stephen is one that was described earlier in chapter 6 of being full of the Spirit. Here, the Spirit is working and speaking through him as he's explaining the Scriptures. And remember, the Spirit was given to the people at this time to further the good news of the message of Christ. And as Stephen is speaking at it, they cannot uh, overcome what he's saying. They could not withstand his wisdom. Stephen is... um, in a skillful and true way, showing them from the Scriptures who Jesus is and the implications that that has for their religious practice as it relates to the temple and the law. And they cannot stand it. Now, it's important for us to remember what this message was about Jesus because we already talked about earlier in our service. If we get Jesus wrong, we get it all wrong. And Stephen and throughout Acts, we've seen that what Luke is trying to communicate is that there is only one name under heaven by which we can be saved, and that is Jesus. It's not just the name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, or spell it in whatever language you want to spell it in, but name talks about his character, his person, his work. It is only through Jesus you can be saved. If you're trying to go anywhere else trusting in any other thing, you will not be saved. It is only in Jesus. Jesus is God who took on flesh. He came into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died to be the substitute for sinners. Luke has been showing us that, as the, and Peter and the speakers have been showing us that, that Jesus was the suffering servant that Isaiah told of, who would come and suffer for the sins of his people dying on the cross, but he would rise again, communicating that what was accomplished on the cross satisfied God's just wrath and the penalty for our sin, but also it confirmed that Jesus was who he said he was. And Luke has given us eyewitness accounts that Jesus not only rose, 
but he's now ascended and he rules over all things. This is the Jesus that we're talking about. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes. He is the fulfillment and the only way of salvation and forgiveness of sins. This is the Jesus that we are talking about. But notice, they do not want to hear this message about Jesus. They can't withstand the the wisdom and the, the speaking of the Spirit that Stephen brings. So much so that they stir up false witnesses who are saying whatever they can to get Stephen in trouble. These charges of blasphemy would have resulted in death. They're trying to get Stephen killed. They seize him. They grab him. There's something about this message that Stephen is bringing that they are reacting against. The turkey is good. The frozen turkey is going into the hot oil. Why are they so upset? It's important to remember that uh, as we're thinking about um, the, the Jewish people at this time period, especially the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews that, who would have been erased outside of Jerusalem, but they see such an importance connected to Jerusalem, to the temple and to what's going on there that they've left uh, their families and they've come to establish and live in Jerusalem. For, for them and the Jewish people at that time, the temple was a place of deep identity for them. The law of God was a place of deep identity and boundary markers for who the people of God were. They took great pride in the temple and in the law of God because it separated them and it made them distinct from the rest of the people. Look at how great we are. Look at how unique we are. Look at how much God favors us over all of you. Look at how much better we are than everyone else. This was what, how they viewed the temple and the law. And if they lost it, if this message about Jesus affects our place of pride and of our deep identity, they don't want to have anything to do with it. Notice how Stephen points this out. He's wanting to communicate and let them know, look, you've missed. You've completely missed why God gave you the temple, why God gave you the law. And you've completely distorted uh, God's um, gift to you of how to relate to him. And you've turned it into a man-made religion. Notice in verse uh, just as Stephen's going through this uh, this sermon, he starts going back to throughout the, the, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and he's pointing out to key people in the lives of, uh, of the Jewish faith that they would have uh, associated their identity around. But notice what he points out, particularly as he's uh, at first, he focuses on, on the temple In verse two, um, Stephen talks about the God of glory. Uh, appearing to Abraham, their father. Where was Abraham when the God of glory appeared to him? Notice it was not in Jerusalem. It was not in the temple. Stephen's making a point of this. It was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. In verse 7, he points it out again. Um, uh, uh, I will judge the nation that they serve. This is God speaking to Abraham and telling about the deliverance when he will ultimately deliver and bring Israel out of Egypt. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Where is this place that God is talking about that when he delivers the people of Israel out that they would worship him? 
it's, at that point, it's not Jerusalem. It's Mount Sinai, which is outside of the promised land. He goes on. He keeps bringing this, this point up in verse nine. Notice. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Where was God with him? Where was God's presence with Joseph? It was in Egypt. It wasn't in Jerusalem. God was in Egypt. The same thing in verse 30 as it begins to talk about Moses. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai and a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. From their perspective, the, the, the only holy place was a temple. But what, what Stephen's pointing is, is, is you're, you're missing it. If you're trying to restrict God into the temple and into your man-made focus of, of where God is and that He is only located here among the Jewish people and in the temple, you've completely missed it. Because when Moses was in the wilderness, God appeared to him and it's where God is located where his presence is that the ground is holy and that is never been contained in the temple and it never will be notice as he goes on in verse 39 and following what ends up uh, ends up happening he says uh, of as Moses comes and seeks to instruct them he says our fathers refused to obey him but they thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me the slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. What Stephen is pointing out, he's like, he says, that you need to think back and remember, God sent Moses to tell the people of Israel how they were to relate and worship him. And remember, they turned from Moses. They rejected him and they turned to false gods. They turned to a form of idolatry, a man-made religion. They formed this calf and worshipped it. This was a, uh, a horrific uh, instant incident in the life of the people of Israel. And even the Jews of this day would have seen that as being a horrible thing. That you would turn from the God who has sent His Redeemer, who is through mighty acts and works has delivered you out of Egypt to worship Him. And now you turn from this Deliverer who has done this mighty act on your behalf and you turn to worship these false gods? This is horrible. Not us. But what is Stephen saying? That is you. You were acting just like them. Because just as God sent Moses to be the, the, the deliverer and the redeemer and to communicate the truth of how you're to relate to God, Jesus has come. Jesus, the, the very presence of God among you, one who is greater than the temple, who 
is actually the fulfillment of everything that the temple uh, pointed to and described is fulfilled in Christ. He came into your midst and you rejected him. Notice how Stephen says the implications of this, the fact that they rejected Jesus and what they are doing now. Down in verse 49. Yet the Most High, he talks about when uh, Solomon finally built this house, this temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Uh, Here, Stephen is pointing to this passage out of uh, Isaiah. And he's saying, look, don't you realize that God is the ruler over all things? His throne is in heaven. His footstool is the earth. Everything is his. He would never, could never be contained or dwell in a house made by hands. But it's interesting that the, the terminology that Stephen uses there, that language in houses made by hands. Notice back up in verse 41, he talks about something else being made by hands. It was these idols. Throughout the scriptures, when something is talked about about being made by hands, it's describing making a lot of times false idols, graven images, these false gods. Stephen is saying here, just like your fathers in the wilderness who turned from their Redeemer, who came to them to worship another God and practice idolatry, you're doing the same thing. You've turned from Jesus who has come into the world, who, has, uh, who, who fulfills everything that the temple was pointing to. You've rejected Him. And the way that you're dealing with the temple now, you've made it into an idol. It is as if it is something that has been made by hands. It is man-made religion. You have distorted this gift that God gave to you of a place where He would in a special way dwell until the promised one came and you have made it become just like one big giant idol. You have rejected your Redeemer and turned to man-made religion. The Gospel and the message of Jesus is not compatible with man-made religion. Notice the same thing comes up here with their perspective on the law. They say that uh, what Stephen was doing was blaspheming against Moses and God and speaking against Him and he was going to change the customs. Um, but uh, notice that Stephen, uh, Stephen isn't against the law. He sees it as a good thing. In this passage, we see him describe it as being uh, something that he, he, he calls living oracles. Message and communication that is coming from God that brings life to his people. God appeared to Moses and the, and the, the law that he's given them is uh, communicating to them how they are going to be brought out of Egypt. But what it looks like to relate to him and to be uh, God's people. The people, uh, God in verse 25 and 27, we see that God sends Moses to be their deliverer and their redeemer and they reject him. He comes bringing this this message of of deliverance and hope and they turn from him. Um, And then in verse 35 and 38, Stephen focuses on them again. This word that Moses brings, this teaching that he brings, all of that that they would have have lumped into uh, the law that Moses communicated to them. um, They respond by saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? 
as Stephen goes on in saying, this is the Moses who said that God will raise up a prophet after me. This is the one that we'll see later. Uh, Peter's already been communicating. This prophet that Moses was speaking of was Jesus. This was the prophet that Moses said, when he comes, you must listen to him. You must obey him. If you don't, you will be cut off from the people of God. But they continued to refuse to obey him. And in verse 39 through 41, it, uh, he, uh, Stephen talks about how in verse 39, they refused to obey him and thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they returned or they turned to Egypt. You see, in Moses, Moses is communicating and expressing the good news about Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus, but they're thrusting Moses away back in Egypt. And now the Jews, the Hellenistic Jews that Stephen is talking to are doing the same thing. They're thrusting the good news of Christ away that Moses was speaking. And Moses describes them as this way. You're stiff necked people. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. The prophets came. Which of the prophets did you not persecute? The ones who beforehand announced the coming of the righteous one whom you murdered and betrayed. Stephen is saying all of the Old Testament was pointing to the fact that Jesus was coming, that he was going to be the true righteous one who would suffer on behalf of his people. But you've continued to reject it. You rejected Moses. You rejected the prophets. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit and pushing it away. You may think you're the one who is obeying the messages that God gave. That's their their accusation, right? Stephen is the one who is being disobedient to Moses. Stephen is the one and this message of Jesus is distorting all that God gave us. They're the ones who are living unrighteous lives. They are the ones who are violating God's commandments and his instructions We are the righteous ones. We are the religious ones. We are the true Jews. And Stephen is saying, you disobeyed it. In verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels, you did not keep it. Because if you would have kept it, you would have hoped and trusted in Jesus when the message came. And now the way that you're living and your life that you're living is not pleasing to God. This past week I was reading about some artists who use really disgusting media, medium to make their artwork. One guy, instead of using paint, makes these incredible pictures and very detailed, great works of art, but he uses his own blood as the paint. Would you want to hang a picture like that on your wall? There's something about there's something beautiful, but but the more you understand about what went into making it, it's disgusting and it's revolting. I read that this isn't new. Picasso, one of the masters whose paintings are worth millions of dollars, considered one of the greatest artists in history. Would you like to have a painting that Picasso made hanging on your wall? People steal and rob museums trying to get these things. Uh, One of Picasso's relatives said that one time Picasso uh, painted a picture of an apple. And then what he used instead of paint was he used poop out of his newborn baby's diaper. 
It's disgusting, right? You could have a completely beautiful picture, but when you find out what went into making it, you would be repulsed and disgusted. You would never want this beautiful piece of art if you knew what it was that made it. That's what Stephen is saying here. That's what the Scriptures are saying here. Your, your works of righteousness, you think you're keeping the law, you're doing good things, you're, you're, you have the temple, you're following doing these things that you think would please God, you're actually disobeying them. And it may look good on the outside, you've been circumcised, you're keeping the law, but you've rejected Jesus. Your righteousness, your man-made righteousness, your man-made religion is revolting and disgusting to God. And it doesn't matter how beautiful you may think it looks because you've turned from Christ and you've turned to man-made religion and man-made righteousness. You will be rejected. The gospel and the good news, the message of Jesus is completely and totally incompatible with the uh, man-made religion. And notice how it's exposed here. As Stephen speaks this uh, in verse 54, when they hear it, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And it goes on, it says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they ultimately end up stoning him. You see, the heart of man-made religion deep down, the heart of man-made and self-righteousness that is opposed to the message of Jesus, although it may look good on the outside, what do we see here is at the heart of it? The root of it, of this religion, man-made religion and righteousness is rebellion. It's anger. It's rage against God and against His King. And it is displeasing to our God. Remember, here, this is Stephen. He is a Jew. He's speaking to Jews. Sometimes Luke's uh, acts gets criticized as being uh, an anti-Semitic book of the Scriptures. But what we should see here is what Stephen is saying is that first off, the Jews, the message is going to the people of Israel. And Stephen is saying, look, hope is found in Jesus. Those who are obeying the law of Moses are clinging and hoping and trusting in him. If this was true for the Jews, those who had uh, the Old Testament scriptures, those who had the, the, the temple and the law of God, if their man-made religion, their man-made righteousness, they had distorted these, uh, these things that God had given them. If this was true of them, that their practices would not be acceptable to God. And how much more so true of us or any other idol worshipers? All of us are in need of Christ. This... Uh, Past week, we went to a, a wedding in um, in New England, uh, in Connecticut. Some people told me that that's not technically New England, but uh, I'll call it that. Um, and uh, I, I got to know the, the pastor who was doing the, the wedding ceremony. And he said that the church that he was now serving in uh, uh, got its start back in the, the 80s when it pulled out of another church. 
um, the people who were who were there uh, liked the idea of going to church and attending church, but they didn't know how to be a church. So uh, because of their disagreements with the other denomination, when they formed this other church, their thoughts were, well, I mean, a church is just kind of like a, a country club, right? I mean, we're members of the country club, so let's just take the country club bylaws and we'll change the language so it's more religious sounding and that'll be how we organize our church. And so that's what they did. And he said for the past several decades, there has not been a, 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 believe, a believer of Jesus who is the pastor of this church, nor members of this church who are believers in Jesus. And so he's taken this call at this church as a, a mission to this supposed community of Christ. And he's saying that as he, he, he's been preaching and communicating and trying to teach them about who Jesus is, people are starting to come up to him after the service and saying, um, I want to hear more about this Jesus that you're talking about. You see, just because we go to church or attend a church or are religious does not mean that we're pleasing and glorifying and accepting to God. Man-made religion, religion that has removed Jesus out of it and who thinks that, uh, that us living our lives a certain way or, or, uh, or doing certain things or pleasing to God, we've completely missed it. If, think about that in the Bible Belt. Let's move away from New England and begin to get here in our culture. Is the same thing not true? That we can get caught up in being Christians? We practice and have Judeo-Christian values. Uh, we are religious people. I mean, we're not worshiping false gods. We attend and go to church. We're members of churches. In fact, I was baptized. I'm an active member. I serve and I help at the VBS. And when they have a food drive, I go. I mean, look at the holidays we celebrate. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Easter. God is saying here in this passage and communicating to us that if we've completely removed Jesus out of it and we do not see that our deepest need is Christ and that our righteousness is only going to be found in Him, then we have, we can call it Christianity. You can go to church, but if you've distorted it into a man-made religion and you think that God, or I think that God is pleased just by my church attendance or my charity work or my Bible reading or my prayer, if I'm resting and hoping in those things and not in Christ, then we might as well just be handing God Picasso poop apples. And saying, hey God, are you pleased with me? Why aren't you accepting of this? And not realizing that it's completely revolting and disgusting to him. Because apart from Jesus, we can never be accepted by God. The message of Christ is completely and totally incompatible with man-made religion. And many times we can end up doing the same thing. Um, why do you come here on Sunday mornings? Is it because it's something that you feel like you have to do? That this is just something Christians do? 
What kind of difference does Jesus make in your life? Is there a love in your heart for him? Do you realize and recognize that, that your righteousness of the good works and the deeds that you do do not please God at all apart from Christ? If you think that it's because you're coming here or you're giving money or you're volunteering around that in the end God will say, oh, well done. Stephen is telling the Hellenistic Jews there who were thinking the same thing. And he's telling you and he's telling me, you're going to be sadly mistaken. Um, In the movie, um, or the book actually, uh, um, what's Ebenezer Scrooge? No, Ebenezer Scrooge. Christmas Carol, that's what it is. I'm getting it up with a Christmas story. So, in there, Jacob Marley appears to Scrooge and telling Scrooge, because remember, Scrooge's acts were, were cruel and wicked. It was apparent on the outside. He swindled people. He cheated people. And there's Jacob Marley with these chains all around him. And Scrooge is like, Jacob, what is this? And he goes, it's my bad deeds. I've been doing all these bad deeds and I've been making this chain and it's oppressing. And Scrooge, you have hope. You can escape it. Turn, repent of your bad deeds, Scrooge, and and you will not have this chain on you. Guess what Stephen is saying to you and to me and to the Jews here? It actually could not be your bad deeds that are making this chain. It could be your good deeds. Your good deeds could be what condemns you when Christ returns. If you are hoping in your man-made religion your church attendance, your good deeds and your actions, it could actually be your, your man-made righteousness and your man-made religion will condemn you and will not justify you. It's hard to think about repenting of our righteousness, isn't it? But that is in fact what many of us need to do. What hope is there? Well, we turn. We turn from man-made righteousness and man-made religion. We turn to Christ. Notice, that's Stephen's message here. From the beginning, all that, as this, this message that Stephen has been communicating that we've seen evident here in Acts. Circumcision that the Jews were going through, that they used as a boundary marker to, to distinguish them from other people. It was pointing to Christ. Only in blood being shed will you be made pure and set apart. The temple pointed to Jesus as the one place where in Christ God dwelt with humanity and He comes in a special way. All of the sacrifices pointing to Jesus that in only in blood being shed will you be made clean. A bull and a goat? No. Pointing to the righteous one who would come and live. God giving himself to suffer and die for you. The law of Moses, all of the prophets, everything was pointing to Jesus. It is only in Jesus that you will find salvation. It is only in Jesus that you will find righteousness. It is only through Jesus that you can approach God. Now that Christ has come, the temple There's no need for it. Now that Christ has come, the laws that regulated how you were made right with God through the sacrifices, we don't need those anymore. Jesus has fulfilled them. Your identity is found in Christ. But if you do not turn from this man-made religion and man-made righteousness, you will 
suffer. But notice what Stephen says. In turning to Christ, we can find forgiveness. Notice in verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he falls to his knees as they're pounding him through these rocks. And the last word that he cries out is a prayer. A prayer to Jesus. Not to the temple. He doesn't say, go to the temple and find forgiveness. He calls out to Jesus and says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. His dying breath was a prayer for them and an invitation for them as well to seek and find forgiveness from Christ. That is the only hope that we have. Forgiveness is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. The good news of the Gospel is that it's not through our our religion. It's not through our own self-made righteousness that we'll be made right. But it's through what God has done. It's through what Jesus has done for you. If we're hoping and depending and resting in any of those things, it's completely incompatible with the Gospel message of Jesus. This morning, what God is calling us to through this message of Stephen is to look and hope and rest in Christ alone. For us to live a life where we're repenting of our own righteousness and clinging and hoping in Christ, the righteous one. Let's go to him in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for uh, your work on our behalf. Um, We thank you for forgiveness that is found in you. We pray that you would help us to see where we're trusting in our own righteousness. Where we're thinking that we're performing for you instead of resting in what Christ has done for us. We thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you that there is hope there for us. May we rest in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen.